Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 342 of Forgotten Classics, where we are still in the middle of hunting ghosts with Karnacki the Ghost Finder. As I've mentioned before, I gave up audio listening for Lent, and so I don't have any new podcasts or audiobooks to direct you to in case the wait between chapters is too long. I did see Arrival. It was at the Dollar Movie, and it was definitely worth seeing at the movie, even though it's not one of these movies that's a shoot 'em up kind of movie. For those who haven't heard of it, it was nominated for an Oscar, so I feel like a lot of people did hear of it, and it was one of the bigger ones that was this year. But it's a science fiction movie about aliens showing up in 12 places all over the planet, and our heroine, played by Amy Adams, her name is Louise, but she's a linguistics professor and very good at it, and so the government calls her in to try to figure out how these aliens are speaking. And it turns into quite an interesting puzzle. This movie is based on Ted Chang, which is C-H-I-A-N-G, his story called The Story of Your Life, which can be found in a short story collection called The Story of Your Life and Others. And uh, Scott Danielson and I talked about that on one of our podcasts on A Good Story is Hard to Find a long time ago. And so I was a bit at a disadvantage in experiencing the movie fresh because about a third of the way into it, I suddenly remembered the gist of the story. The story is not exactly like the movie. Ted Chang saw it and said that he felt it caught the heart of the story. The movie did. And I also felt the same thing. I was so moved by this movie. It was really a wonderful experience. And if it sounds at all interesting, definitely give it a try. It was really something unusual, I think, for a science fiction movie. Now, on to our unexplainable things right here in front of us, according to Karnacki the Ghost Finder. We are going to have an unusual look at Karnacki this time. This is a story from his early days, and he doesn't say it was his first case. But you kind of get the idea it might have been one of the very first times he's hunting ghosts. He's at home and living with his mother. So it was a while ago. I had a lot of fun with this one just because... I liked seeing him try to figure out everything and pulling in the local help and developing some of the ideas that we've already seen him use some. No pentacles, though. He hadn't really read the manuscripts the way he should have. (laughs) That's how you know it's early. Anyway, I really enjoyed this one, especially if nothing else, because of the inclusion of his mother, who is quite a stalwart lady. Let's not worry about any more details. I don't want to ruin the story for you. Let's just dive in. Karnacki the Ghost Finder by William Hope Hodgson The Searcher of the End House It was still evening, as I remember, and the 
four of us, Jessop, Arkwright, Taylor, and I, looked disappointedly at Carnacki, where he sat silent in his great chair. We had come in response to the usual card of invitation, which, as you know, we have come to consider as a sure prelude to a good story. And now, after telling us the short incident of the three straw platters, he had lapsed into a contented silence, and the night not half gone, as I have hinted. However, as it chanced, some pitying fate jogged Carnacki's elbow, or his memory, and he began again in his queer level way. The straw platters business reminds me of the searcher case, which I have sometimes thought might interest you. It was some time ago, in fact a deuce of a long time ago, that the thing happened, and my experience of what I might term curious things was very small at the time. I was living with my mother when it occurred, in a small house just outside of Appledorn, on the south coast. The house was the last of a row of detached cottage villas, each house standing in its own garden, and very dainty little places they were, very old, and most of them smothered in roses, and all with those quaint old leaded windows and doors of genuine oak. You must try to picture them for the sake of their complete niceness. Now I must remind you at the beginning that my mother and I had lived in that little house for two years, and in the whole of that time there had not been a single peculiar happening to worry us. And then something happened. It was about two o'clock one morning, as I was finishing some letters, that I heard the door of my mother's bedroom open, and she came to the top of the stairs and knocked on the banisters. "'All right, dear,' I called, for I supposed she was merely reminding me that I should have been in bed long ago. Then I heard her go back to her room, and I hurried my work, for fear she should lie awake until she heard me safe up to my room. When I was finished, I lit my candle, put out the lamp, and went upstairs. As I came opposite the door of my mother's room, I saw that it was open, called good-night to her very softly, and asked whether I should close the door. As there was no answer, I knew that she had dropped off to sleep again, and I closed the door very gently and turned into my room just across the passage. As I did so, I experienced a momentary half-aware sense of a faint, peculiar, disagreeable odor in the passage— but it was not until the following night that I realized I had noticed a smell that offended me. You follow me. It is so often like that. One suddenly knows a thing that really recorded itself on one's consciousness, perhaps a year before. The next morning at breakfast, I mentioned casually to my mother that she had dropped off and I had shut the door for her. To my surprise, she assured me that she had never been out of her room. I reminded her about the two raps she had given upon the banister, but she was still certain I must be mistaken, and in the end I teased her, saying she had grown so accustomed to my bad habit of sitting up late that she had come to call me in her sleep. Of course, she denied this, and I let the matter drop. But I was more than a little puzzled, and I did not know whether to believe my own explanation or to take the mater's which was to put the noises down to the mice, and the open door to the fact that she couldn't have properly latched it when she went to bed. I suppose, away in the subconscious part of me, I had a stirring of less reasonable thoughts, but certainly I had no real uneasiness at the time. The next night there came a further development. About 2.30 a.m. I heard my mother's door open, just as on the previous night, and immediately afterwards she rapped sharply on the banister as it seemed to me. 
I stopped my work and called up that I would not be long. As she made no reply, and I did not hear her go back to bed, I had a quick sense of wonder whether she might not be doing it in her sleep after all, just as I had said. With that thought, I stood up and, taking the lamp from the table, began to go toward the door, which was open into the passage. It was then I got a sudden nasty sort of thrill, for it came to me all at once that my mother never knocked when I sat up too late. She always called. You will understand I was not really frightened in any way, only vaguely uneasy, and pretty sure she must really be doing the thing in her sleep. I went quickly up the stairs, and when I came to the top my mother was not there, but her door was open. I had a bewildered sense though believing she must have gone quietly back to bed without my hearing her. I entered her room and found her sleeping quietly and naturally, for the vague sense of trouble in me was sufficiently strong to make me go over to look at her. When I was sure she was perfectly right in every way, I was still a little bothered, but much more inclined to think my suspicion correct, and that she had gone quietly back to bed in her sleep, without knowing what she had been doing. This was the most reasonable thing to think, as you must see. And then it came to me suddenly, that vague, queer, mildewy smell in the room. And it was in that instant I became aware that I had smelt the same strange, uncertain smell the night before in the passage. I was definitely uneasy now and began to search my mother's room, though with no aim or clear thought of anything except to assure myself that there was nothing in the room. At the time, you know, I never expected really to find anything, only my uneasiness had to be assured. In the middle of my search, my mother woke up, and of course I had to explain. I told her about her door opening and the knocks on the banister and that I had come up and found her asleep. I said nothing about the smell, which was not very distinct, but told her that the thing happening twice had made me a bit nervous, and possibly fanciful, and I thought I would take a look round just to feel satisfied. I have thought since that the reason I made no mention of the smell was not only that I did not want to frighten my mother, for I was scarcely that myself, but because I had only a vague half-knowledge that I associated the smell with fancies too indefinite and peculiar to bear talking about. You will understand that I am able now to analyze and put the thing into words, but then... I did not even know my chief reason for saying nothing, let alone appreciate its possible significance. It was my mother, after all, who put part of my vague sensations into words. "'What a disagreeable smell!' she exclaimed, and was silent a moment, looking at me. "'Then you feel there's something wrong?' Still looking at me, very quietly, but with a little nervous note of questioning expectancy. "'I don't know.' I said, I can't understand it unless you've really been walking about in your sleep. The smell, she said. Yes, I replied. That's what puzzles me, too. I'll take a walk through the house, but I don't suppose it's anything. I lit her candle, and taking the lamp, I went through the other bedrooms, and afterward all over the house, including the three underground cellars, which was a little trying to the nerves, seeing that I was more nervous than I would admit. Then I went back to my mother and told her there was really nothing to bother about, and, you know, in the end, we talked ourselves into believing it was nothing. 
My mother would not agree that she might have been sleepwalking, but she was ready to put the door opening down to the fault of the latch, which certainly snicked very lightly. As for the knocks, they might be the old warped woodwork of the house cracking a bit, or a mouse rattling a piece of loose plaster. The smell was more difficult to explain, but finally we agreed that it might easily be the queer night smell of the moist earth coming in through the open window of my mother's room from the back garden, or, for that matter, from the little churchyard beyond the big wall at the bottom of the garden. And so we quieted down, and finally I went to bed and to sleep. I think this is certainly a lesson on the way we humans can delude ourselves, for there was not one of these explanations that my reason could really accept. Try to imagine yourself in the same circumstances, and you will see how absurd our attempts to explain the happenings really were. In the morning, when I came down to breakfast, we talked it all over again, and whilst we agreed that it was strange, we also agreed that we had begun to imagine funny things in the back of our minds, which we now felt half ashamed to admit. This is very strange when you come to look into it, but very human. And then, that night again, my mother's door was slammed once more just after midnight. I caught up the lamp, and when I reached her door, I found it shut. I opened it quickly and went in, to find my mother lying with her eyes open and rather nervous, having been waked by the bang of the door. But what upset me more than anything was the fact that there was a disgusting smell in the passage and in her room. Whilst I was asking her whether she was all right, a door slammed twice downstairs, and you can imagine how it made me feel. My mother and I looked at one another, and then I lit her candle, and taking the poker from the fender, went downstairs with the lamp, beginning to feel really nervous. The cumulative effect of so many queer happenings was getting hold of me, and all the apparently reasonable explanations seemed futile. The horrible smell seemed to be very strong in the downstairs passage, also in the front room and the cellars, but chiefly in the passage. I made a very thorough search of the house, and when I had finished, I knew that all the lower windows and doors were properly shut and fastened, and that there was no living thing in the house, beyond our two selves. Then I went up to my mother's room again, and we talked the thing over for an hour more, and in the end, hmm, came to the conclusion that we might, after all, be reading too much into a number of little things. But you know, inside of us, we did not believe this. Later, when we had talked ourselves into a more comfortable state of mind, I said good night and went off to bed and presently managed to get to sleep. In the early hours of the morning, whilst it was still dark, I was wakened by a loud noise. I sat up in bed and listened, and from downstairs I heard bang, 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 one door after another being slammed. At least that is the impression the sounds gave me. I jumped out of bed with a tingle and shiver of sudden fright on me, and at the same moment as I lit my candle, my door was being pushed slowly open. I had left it unlatched, so as not to feel that my mother was quite shut off from me. "'Who's there?' I shouted out, in a voice twice as deep as my natural one, and with a queer breathlessness that sudden fright so often gives one. "'Who's there?' Then I heard my mother saying, "'It's me, Thomas. Whatever is happening downstairs?' 
She was in the room by this time, and I saw she had her bedroom poker in one hand and her candle in the other. I could have smiled at her, had it not been for the extraordinary sounds downstairs. I got into my slippers and reached down an old sword bayonet from the wall. Then I picked up my candle and begged my mother not to come. But I knew it would be of little use if she had made up her mind. And she had, with the result that she acted as a sort of rear guard for me during our search. I know in some ways I was very glad to have her with me, as you will understand. By this time, the door slamming had ceased, and there seemed, probably because of the contrast, to be an appalling silence in the house. However, I led the way, holding my candle high and keeping the sword bayonet very handy. Downstairs, we found all the doors wide open, although the outer doors and windows were closed all right. I began to wonder whether the noises had been made by the doors after all. Of one thing only were we sure— and that was, there was no living thing in the house besides ourselves, while everywhere throughout the house there was the taint of that disgusting odor. Of course it was absurd to try to make believe any longer. There was something strange about the house, and as soon as it was daylight I set my mother to pecking, and soon after breakfast I saw her off by train. Then I set to work to try to clear up the mystery. I went first to the landlord and told him all the circumstances. From him I found that twelve or fifteen years back the house had got rather a curious name from three or four tenants, with the result that it had remained empty a long time. In the end he had let it at a low rent to a Captain Tobias, on one condition that he should hold his tongue if he saw anything peculiar. The landlord's idea, as he told me frankly, was to free the house from these tales of something queer by keeping a tenant in it and then to sell it for the best prices he could get. However, when Captain Tobias left after a ten years' tenancy, there was no longer any talk about the house, so when I offered to take it on a five-year lease, he had jumped at the offer. This was the whole story, so he gave me to understand. When I pressed him for details of the supposed peculiar happenings in the house all those years back, he said the tenants had talked about a woman who always moved about the house at night. Some tenants never saw anything, but others would not stay out the first month's tenancy. One thing the landlord was particular to point out, that no tenant had ever complained about knockings or door slamming. As for the smell, he seemed positively indignant about it. But why? I don't suppose he knew himself, except that he probably had some vague feeling that it was an indirect accusation on my part that the drains were not right. In the end, I suggested that he should come down and spend the night with me. He agreed at once, especially as I told him I intended to keep the whole business quiet and try to get to the bottom of the curious affair, for he was anxious to keep the rumor of the haunting from getting out. About three o'clock that afternoon he came down, and we made a thorough search of the house, which, however, revealed nothing unusual. Afterward, the landlord made one or two tests, which showed him the drainage was in perfect order. After that, we made our preparations for sitting up all night. First, we borrowed two policemen's dark lanterns from the station nearby and where the superintendent and I were friendly, and as soon as it was really dusk, the landlord went up to the house for his gun. I had the sword bayonet I have told you about, and when the landlord got back, we sat in my study until nearly midnight. Then we lit the lanterns and went upstairs. 
we placed the lanterns, gun, and bayonet handy on the table. Then I shut and sealed the bedroom doors. Afterward, we took our seats and turned off the lights. From then until two o'clock, nothing happened. But a little after two, as I found by holding my watch near the faint glow of the closed lanterns, I had a time of extraordinary nervousness, and I bent toward the landlord and whispered to him that I had a queer feeling something was about to happen and to be ready with his lantern. At the same time, I reached out toward mine. In the very instant I made this movement, the darkness which filled the passage seemed to become suddenly of a dull violet color, not as if a light had been shown, but as if the natural blackness of the night had changed color. And then, coming through this violet night, through this violet-colored gloom, came a naked little child running. In an extraordinary way, the child seemed not to be distinct from the surrounding gloom, but almost as if it were a concentration of that extraordinary atmosphere, as if that gloomy color which had changed the night came from the child. It seems impossible to make clear to you, but try to understand it. The child went past me, running with the natural movement of the legs of a chubby human child, but in an absolute and inconceivable silence. It was a very small child, and must have passed under the table, but I saw the child through the table, as if it had been only a slightly darker shadow than the colored gloom. In the same instant, I saw that a fluctuating glimmer of violet light outlined the metal of the gun barrels and the blade of the sword bayonet, making them seem like faint shapes of glimmering light, floating unsupported where the tabletop should have shown solid. Now, curiously, as I saw these things, I was subconsciously aware that I heard the anxious breathing of the landlord, quite clear and labored, close to my elbow, where he waited nervously with his hands on the lantern. I realized in that moment that he saw nothing, but waited in the darkness for my warning to come true. Even as I took heed of these minor things, I saw the child jump to one side and hide behind some half-seen object that was certainly nothing belonging to the passage. I stared intently, with a most extraordinary thrill of expectant wonder, with fright making goose flesh of my back. Even as I stared, I solved for myself the less important problem of what the two black clouds were that hung over a part of the table. I think it very curious and interesting, the double working of the mind, often so much more apparent during times of stress. The two clouds came from two faintly shining shapes, which I knew must be the metal of the lanterns, and the things that looked black to the sight with which I was then seeing could be nothing else but what to normal human sight is known as light. This phenomenon I have always remembered. I have twice seen a somewhat similar thing, in the dark light case, and in the trouble of Matheson's, which you know about. Even as I understood this matter of the lights, I was looking to my left to understand why the child was hiding, and suddenly I heard the landlord shout out, The woman! But I saw nothing. I had a disagreeable sense that something repugnant was near to me, and I was aware in the same moment that the landlord was gripping my arm in a hard, frightened grip. Then I was looking back to where the child was hidden. I saw the child peeping out from behind its hiding place, seeming to be looking up the passage, but whether in fear I could not tell. Then it came out and ran headlong away, 
through the place where should have been the wall of my mother's bedroom, but the sense with which I was seeing these things showed me the wall only as a vague upright shadow, unsubstantial, and immediately the child was lost to me in the dull violet gloom. At the same time I felt the landlord press back against me as if something had passed close to him, and he called out again in a hoarse sort of cry, "'The woman! The woman!' and turned the shade clumsily from off his lantern. But I had seen no woman, and the passage showed empty as he shone the beam of his light jerkily to and fro, but chiefly in the direction of the doorway of my mother's room. He was still clutching my arm and had risen to his feet, and now mechanically and almost slowly I picked up my lantern and turned on the light. I shone it a little dazedly at the seals upon the doors, but none were broken. Then I sent the light to and fro, up and down the passage, but there was nothing, and I turned to the landlord, who was saying something in a rather incoherent fashion. As my light passed over his face, I noted in a dull sort of way that he was drenched with sweat. Then my wits became more handleable, and I began to catch the drift of his words. "'Did you see her? Did you see her?' he was saying over and over again, and then I found myself telling him, in quite a level voice, that I had not seen any woman. He became more coherent then, and I found that he had seen a woman come from the end of the passage and go past us. But he could not describe her, except she kept stopping and looking about her, and even peered at the wall close beside him, as if looking for something. But what seemed to trouble him most was that she had not seemed to see him at all. He repeated this so often that in the end I told him in an absurd sort of way that he ought to be very glad she had not. What did it all mean was the question. Somehow I was not so frightened as utterly bewildered. I had seen less then than since, but what I had seen had made me feel adrift from my anchorage of reason. What did it mean? He had seen a woman searching for something. I had not seen this woman. I had seen a child running away and hiding from something, or someone. He had not seen the child or the other things, only the woman, and I had not seen her. What did it all mean? I had said nothing to the landlord about the child. I had been too bewildered, and I realized that it would be futile to attempt an explanation. He was already stupid with the thing he had seen, and not the kind of man to understand. All this went through my mind as we stood there, shining the lanterns to and fro. All the time, intermingled with a streak of practical reasoning, I was questioning myself. What did it all mean? What was the woman searching for? What was the child running from? Suddenly, as I stood there, bewildered and nervous, making random answers to the landlord, a door below was violently slammed, and directly I caught the horrible reek of which I have told you. There, I said to the landlord, and caught his arm in my turn. The smell. Do you smell it? He looked at me so stupidly that in a sort of nervous anger I shook him. Yes, he said in a queer voice, trying to shine the light from his shaking lantern at the stairhead. Come on, I said, and picked up my bayonet, and he came, carrying his gun awkwardly. I think he came more because he was afraid to be left alone than because he had any pluck left, poor beggar. I never sneer at that kind of funk, 
at least very seldom, for when it takes hold of you, it makes rags of your courage. I led the way downstairs, shining my light into the lower passage, and afterward at the doors to see whether they were shut, for I had closed and latched them, placing a corner of a mat against each door, so I should know which had been opened. I saw at once that none of the doors had been opened. Then I threw the beam of my light down alongside the stairway in order to see the mat I had placed against the door at the top of the cellar stairs. I got a horrid thrill, for the mat was flat. I paused a couple of seconds, shining my light to and fro in the passage, and holding fast to my courage, I went down the stairs. As I came to the bottom step, I saw patches of wet all up and down the passage. I shone my lantern on them. It was the imprint of a wet foot on the oilcloth of the passage. Not an ordinary footprint, but a queer, soft, flabby, spreading imprint that gave me a feeling of extraordinary horror. Backward and forward I flashed the light over the impossible marks and saw them everywhere. Suddenly I noticed that they led to each of the closed doors. I felt something touch my back and glanced round swiftly to find the landlord had come close to me, almost pressing against me in his fear. "'It's all right,' I said, but in a rather breathless whisper, meaning to put a little courage into him, for I could feel that he was shaking through all his body. Even then, as I tried to get him steadied enough to be of some use, his gun went off with a tremendous bang— he jumped and yelled with sheer terror, and I swore because of the shock. Give it to me, for God's sake, I said, and I slipped the gun from his hand. And in the same instant, there was the sound of running steps up the garden path, and immediately the flash of a bullseye lantern upon the fanlight over the door. Then the door was tried, and directly afterward there came a thunderous knocking which told me a policeman had heard the shot. I went to the door and opened it. Fortunately, the constable knew me, and when I had beckoned him in, I was able to explain matters in a very short time. While doing this, Inspector Johnstone came up the path, as having missed the officer and seeing lights on the open door. I told him as briefly as possible what had occurred, and did not mention the child or the woman, for it would have seemed too fantastic for him to notice. I showed him the queer wet footprints and how they went toward the closed doors. I explained quickly about the mats and how that this one against the cellar door was flat, which showed the door had been opened. The inspector nodded and told the constable to guard the door at the top of the cellar stairs. He then asked the hall lamp to be lit, after which he took the policeman's lantern and led the way into the front room. He paused with the door wide open and threw the light all round. Then he jumped into the room and looked behind the door. There was no one there, but all over the polished oak floor, between the scattered rugs, went the marks of those horrible, spreading footprints, and the room permeated with the horrible odor. The inspector searched the room carefully and then went into the middle room using the same precautions. There was nothing in the middle room, or in the kitchen or pantry, but everywhere went the wet footmarks through all the rooms, showing plainly wherever there were woodwork or oilcloth, and always there was the smell. 
The inspector ceased from his search of the rooms and spent a minute in trying whether the mats would really fall flat when the doors were open or merely ruckle up in a way so as to appear they had been untouched. But in each case, the mats fell flat and remained so. Extraordinary, I heard John Stone mutter to himself, and then he went toward the cellar door. He had inquired at first whether there were windows to the cellar, and when he learned there was no way out except by the door, he had left this part of the search to the last. As Johnstone came up to the door, the policeman made a motion of salute and said something in a low voice, and something in the tone made me flick my light across him. I saw then that the man was very white and he looked strange and bewildered. What? said Johnstone impatiently. Speak up. "'A woman came along here, sir, and went through this here door,' said the constable clearly, but with a curious monotonous intonation that is sometimes heard from an unintelligent man. "'Speak up!' shouted the inspector. "'A woman came along and went through this here door,' repeated the man monotonously. The inspector caught the man by the shoulder and deliberately sniffed his breath. "'No,' he said, and then sarcastically, "'I hope you held the door open politely for the lady.' "'The door went open, sir,' said the man quite simply. "'Are you mad?' began John Stone. "'No,' broke in the landlord's voice from the back, speaking steadily enough. "'I saw the woman upstairs.' It was evident he had got his control back again. "'I am afraid, Inspector John Stone,' I said, "'that there's more in this than you think.' I certainly saw some very extraordinary things upstairs. The inspector seemed about to say something, but instead he turned again to the door and flashed his light down and round about the mat. I saw then that the strange, horrible footmarks came straight up to the cellar door and that the last print showed under the door, yet the policeman said the door had not been opened. And suddenly... Without any intention or realization of what I was saying, I asked the landlord, What were the feet like? I received no answer, for the inspector was ordering the constable to open the cellar door, and the man was not obeying. Johnstone repeated the order, and at last, in a queer automatic way, the man obeyed and pushed the door open. The loathsome smell beat up at us in a great wave of horror, and the inspector came backward a step. "'My God!' he said, and went forward again and shone his light down the steps, but there was nothing visible, only that on each step showed the unnatural footprints. The inspector brought the beam of the light vividly on the top step, and there, clear in the light, there was something small moving. The inspector bent to look, and the policeman and I with him. "'I don't want to disgust you.' But the thing we looked at was a maggot. The policeman backed suddenly out of the doorway. The churchyard, he said, at the back of the house. Silence, said John Stone with a queer break in the word, and I knew that at last he was frightened. He put his lantern into the doorway and shone it from step to step, following the footprints down into the darkness. Then he stepped back from the open doorway, and we all gave back with him. He looked round, and I had a feeling that he was looking for a weapon of some kind. "'Your gun,' I said to the landlord, and he brought it from the front hall and passed it over to the inspector, who took it and ejected the empty shell from the right barrel. 
he held out his hand for a live cartridge, which the landlord brought from his pocket. He loaded the gun and snapped the breech. He turned to the constable. Come on, he said, and moved toward the cellar doorway. I ain't coming, sir, said the policeman, very white in the face. With a sudden blaze of passion, the inspector took the man by the scruff and hove him bodily down into the darkness, and he went downward, screaming. The inspector followed him instantly, with his lantern and the gun, and I after the inspector with the bayonet ready. Behind me I heard the landlord. At the bottom of the stairs, the inspector was helping the policeman to his feet, where he stood swaying a moment in a bewildered fashion. Then the inspector went into the front cellar, and his man followed him in stupid fashion, but evidently no longer with any thought of running away from the horror. We all crowded into the front cellar, flashing our lights to and fro. Inspector Johnstone was examining the floor, and I saw that the footmarks went all round the cellar, into all the corners, and across the floor. I thought suddenly of the child that was running away from something. Do you see the thing that I was seeing vaguely? We went out of the cellar in a body, for there was nothing to be found. In the next cellar, the footprints went everywhere, in that queer erratic fashion, as of someone searching for something or following some blind scent. In the third cellar, the prints ended at the shallow well that had been the old water supply of the house. The well was full to the brim, and the water so clear that the pebbly bottom was plainly to be seen as we shone the lights into the water. The search came to an abrupt end, and we stood about the well, looking at one another in an absolute, horrible silence. Johnstone made another examination of the footprints. Then he shone his light again into the clear, shallow water, searching every inch of the plainly seen bottom. But there was nothing there. The cellar was full of the dreadful smell and everyone stood silent, except for the constant turning of the lamps to and fro around the cellar. The inspector looked up from his search of the well and nodded quietly across at me, with his sudden acknowledgement that our belief was now his belief. The smell in the cellar seemed to grow more dreadful, and to be, as it were, a menace, the material expression that some monstrous thing was there with us, invisible. I think began the inspector, and shone his light toward the stairway, and at this the constable's restraint went utterly, and he ran for the stairs, making a queer sound in his throat. The landlord followed at a quick walk, and then the inspector and I. He waited a single instant for me, and we went up together, treading the same steps, and with our lights held backward. At the top I slammed and locked the stair door and wiped my forehead, and my hands were shaking." The inspector asked me to give his man a glass of whiskey, and then he sent him on his beat. He stayed a short while with the landlord and me, and it was arranged that he would join us again the following night and watch the well with us from midnight until daylight. Then he left us just as the dawn was coming in. The landlord and I locked up the house and went over to his place for a sleep. In the afternoon, the landlord and I returned to the house to make arrangements for the night. He was very quiet, and I felt he was to be relied on, now that he had been salted, as it were, with his fright of the previous night. We opened all the doors and windows and blew the house through very thoroughly, and in the meanwhile we lit the lamps in the house and took them into the cellars, where we set them all about so as to have light everywhere. 
Then we carried down three chairs and a table and set them in the cellar where the well was sunk. After that, we stretched thin piano wire across the cellar, about nine inches from the floor, at such a height that it should catch anything moving about in the dark. When this was done, I went through the house with the landlord and sealed every window and door in the place, excepting only the front door and the door at the top of the cellar stairs. Meanwhile, a local wiresmith was making something to my order. And when the landlord and I had finished tea at his house, we went down to see how the smith was getting on. We found the thing complete. It looked rather like a huge parrot's cage, without any bottom, a very heavy gauge wire, and stood about seven feet high and was four feet in diameter. Fortunately, I remembered to have it made longitudinally in two halves, or else we should never have got it through the doorways and down the cellar stairs. I told the wiresmith, to bring the cage up to the house so he could fit the two halves rigidly together. As we returned, I called in at an ironmonger's, where I bought some thin hemp rope and an iron rack pulley, like those used in Lancashire for hauling up the ceiling clothes racks, which you will find in every cottage. I also bought a couple of pitchforks. We shan't want to touch it, I said to the landlord, and he nodded rather white all at once. As soon as the cage arrived and had been fitted together in the cellar, I sent away the smith, and the landlord and I suspended it over the well, into which it fitted easily. After a lot of trouble, we managed to hang it so perfectly central from the rope over the iron pulley that when hoisted to the ceiling and dropped, it went every time plunk into the well like a candle extinguisher. When we had it finally arranged, I hoisted it up once more to the ready position and made the rope fast to a heavy wooden pillar which stood in the middle of the cellar. By ten o'clock I had everything arranged, with the two pitchforks and the two police lanterns, also some whiskey and sandwiches. Underneath the table I had several buckets full of disinfectant. A little after eleven o'clock there was a knock at the front door. And when I went, I found Inspector John Stone had arrived and brought with him one of his plain-clothes men. You will understand how pleased I was to see there would be this addition to our watch, for he looked a tough, nerveless man, brainy and collected, and one I should have picked to help us with the horrible job I felt pretty sure we should have to do that night. When the inspector and the detective had entered, I shut and locked the front door. Then, while the inspector held the light, I sealed the door carefully with tape and wax. At the head of the cellar stairs, I shut and locked that door also and sealed it in the same way. As we entered the cellar, I warned Johnstone and his man to be careful not to fall over the wires, and then, as I saw his surprise at my arrangements, I began to explain my ideas and intentions, to all of which he listened with strong approval. I was pleased to to see also that the detective was nodding his head as I talked, in a way that showed he appreciated all my precautions. As he put his lantern down, the inspector picked up one of the pitchforks and balanced it in his hand. He looked at me and nodded. The best thing, he said. I only wish you'd got two more. Then we took our seats, the detective getting a washing stool from the corner of the cellar. From then until a quarter to twelve, we talked quietly, whilst we made a light supper of whiskey and sandwiches, after which we cleared everything off the table excepting the lanterns and the pitchforks. One of the latter I handed to the inspector, the other I took myself, and then, having set my chair so as to be handy to the rope, which lowered the cage into the well, I went round the cellar and put out every lamp. 
I groped my way to my chair and arranged the pitchfork and dark lantern ready to my hand, after which I suggested that everyone should keep an absolute silence throughout the watch. I asked also that no lantern should be turned on until I gave the word. I put my watch on the table where a faint glow from my lantern made me able to see the time. For an hour nothing happened, and everyone kept an absolute silence, except for an occasional uneasy movement. About half-past one, however, I was conscious again of the same extraordinary and peculiar nervousness which I had felt on the previous night. I put my hand out quickly, and eased the hitched rope from around the pillar. The inspector seemed aware of the movement, for I saw the faint light from his lantern move a little, as if he had suddenly taken hold of it in readiness. A minute later, I noticed there was a change in the color of the night in the cellar, and it grew slowly violet-tinted upon my eyes. I glanced to and fro quickly in the new darkness, and even as I looked I was conscious that the violet color deepened. In the direction of the well, but seeming to be at a great distance, there was, as it were, a nucleus to the change, and the nucleus came swiftly toward us, appearing to come from a great space almost in a single moment. It came near, and I saw again that it was a little naked child running and seeming to be of the violet night in which it ran. The child came with a natural running movement, exactly as I have described it before, but in a silence so peculiarly intense that it was as if it brought the silence with it. About halfway between the well and the table, the child turned swiftly and looked back at something invisible to me, and suddenly it went down into a crouching attitude and seemed to be hiding behind something that showed vaguely. But there was nothing there, except the bare floor of the cellar. Nothing, I mean, of our world. I could hear the breathing of the three other men, with a wonderful distinctness, and also the tick of my watch upon the table seemed to sound as loud and as slow as the tick of an old grandfather clock. Some way I knew that none of the others saw what I was seeing. Abruptly, the landlord who was next to me let out his breath with a little hissing sound. I knew then that something was visible to him. There came a creak from the table, and I had a feeling that the inspector was leaning forward, looking at something I could not see. The landlord reached out his hand through the darkness and fumbled a moment to catch my arm. "'The woman!' he whispered close to my ear. "'Over by the well!' I stared hard in that direction, but saw nothing, except that the violet color of the cellar seemed a little duller just there. I looked back quickly to the vague place where the child was hiding. I saw it was now peering back from its hiding place. Suddenly it rose and ran straight for the middle of the table, which showed only as a vague shadow halfway between my eyes and the unseen floor. As the child ran under the table, the steel prongs of my pitchfork glimmered with a violet fluctuating light. A little while off, there showed high up in the gloom the vaguely shining outline of the other fork, so I knew the inspector had it raised in his hand ready. There was no doubt but that he saw something. On the table, the metal of the five lanterns shone with the same strange glow, and about each lantern there was a little cloud of absolute blackness, where the phenomenon that is light to our natural eyes came through the fittings, and in this complete darkness— The metal of each lantern showed plain, as might a cat's eye in a nest of black cotton wool. Just beyond the table, the child paused again, and stood, 
seeming to oscillate a little upon its feet, which gave the impression that it was lighter and vaguer than a thistledown. And yet in the same moment, another part of me seemed to know that it was to me as something that might be beyond thick, invisible glass and subject to conditions and forces that I was unable to comprehend. The child was looking back again, and my gaze went back the same way. I stared across the cellar and saw the cage hanging clear in the violet light, every wire and tie outlined with its glimmering. Above it there was a little space of gloom, and then the dull shining of the iron pulley which I had screwed into the ceiling. I stared in a bewildered way around the cellar. There were thin lines of vague fire crossing the floor in all directions, and suddenly I remembered the piano wire that the landlord and I had stretched. But there was nothing else to be seen, except that near the table there were indistinct glimmerings of light, and at the far end the outline of a dully glowing revolver, evidently in the detective's pocket. I remember a sort of subconscious satisfaction as I settled the point in a queer automatic fashion. On the table near to me there was a little shapeless collection of the light, and this I knew, after an instant's consideration, to be the steel portions of my watch. I had looked several times at the child and round at the cellar whilst I decided on these trifles, and had found it still in that attitude of hiding from something. But now suddenly it ran clear away into the distance, and was nothing more than a slightly deeper-colored nucleus far away in the strangely colored atmosphere. The landlord gave out a queer little cry and twisted over against me as if to avoid something. From the inspector came a sharp breathing sound, as if he had been suddenly drenched with cold water. Then suddenly, the violet color went out of the night, and I was conscious of the nearness of something monstrous and repugnant. There was a tense silence, and the blackness of the cellar seemed absolute with only the faint glow about each of the lanterns on the table. Then, in the darkness and the silence, there came a faint tinkle of water from the well, as if something were rising noiselessly out of it, and the water running back with a gentle tinkling. In the same instant, there came to me a sudden waft of the awful smell. I gave a sharp cry of warning to the inspector and loosed the rope. There came instantly the sharp splash of the cage entering the water, and then, with a stiff, frightened movement, I opened the shutter of my lantern and shone the light at the cage, shouting to the others to do the same. As my light struck the cage, I saw that about two feet of it projected from the top of the well, and there was something protruding up out of the water into the cage. I stared with a feeling that I recognized the thing. And then, as the other lanterns were opened, I saw that it was a leg of mutton? The thing was held by a brawny fist and arm that rose out of the water. I stood utterly bewildered, watching to see what was coming. In a moment there rose into view a great bearded face that I felt for one quick instant was the face of a drowned man long dead. Then the face opened at the mouth and spluttered and coughed. Another big hand came into view and wiped the water from the eyes which blinked rapidly and then fixed themselves into a stare at the lights. From the detective there came a sudden shout. Captain Tobias, he shouted, and the inspector echoed him and instantly burst into loud roars of laughter. The inspector and the detective ran across the cellar to the cage and I followed, still bewildered. The man in the cage was holding the leg of mutton as far away from him as possible and holding his nose. Lift a dead damn trap, quick, 
he shouted in a stifled voice, but the inspector and the detective simply doubled before him and tried to hold their noses whilst they laughed, and the light from their lanterns went dancing all over the place. Quig! Quig! said the man in the cage, still holding his nose and trying to speak plainly. Then John Stone and the detective stopped laughing and lifted the cage. The man in the well threw the leg across the cellar and turned swiftly to go down into the well, but the officers were too quick for him and had him out in a twinkling. Whilst they held him dripping upon the floor, the inspector jerked his thumb in the direction of the offending leg, and the landlord, having harpooned it with one of the pitchforks, ran with it upstairs and so into the open air. Meanwhile, I had given the man from the well a stiff tot of whiskey, for which he thanked me with a cheerful nod, and having emptied the glass at a draught, held his hand for the bottle, which he finished as if it had been so much water. As you will remember, it was a Captain Tobias who had been the previous tenant, and this was the very man who had appeared from the well. In the course of the talk that followed, I learned the reason for Captain Tobias leaving the house. He had been wanted by the police for smuggling. He had undergone imprisonment and had been released only a couple of weeks earlier. He had returned to find new tenants in his old home. He had entered the house through the well, the walls of which were not continued to the bottom, this I will deal with later, and had gone up by a little stairway in the cellar wall which opened at the top through a panel beside my mother's bedroom. This panel was opened by revolving the left doorpost of the bedroom door, with the result that the bedroom door always became unlatched in the process of opening the panel. The captain complained, without any bitterness, that the panel had warped, and that each time he opened it, it made a cracking noise. This had been evidently what I mistook for raps. He would not give his reason for entering the house, but it was pretty obvious that he had hidden something which he wanted to get out. However, as he found it impossible to get into the house without the risk of being caught, he decided to try to drive us out, relying on the bad reputation of the house and his own artistic efforts as a ghost. I must say he succeeded. He intended then to rent the house again as before and would then, of course, have plenty of time to get whatever he had hidden. The house had suited him admirably, for there was a passage, as he showed me afterward, connecting the dummy well with the crypt of the church beyond the garden wall, and these in turn were connected with certain caves in the cliffs which went down to the beach beyond the church. In the course of his talk, Captain Tobias offered to take the house off my hands, and as this suited me perfectly, for I was about stalled with it, and the plan also suited the landlord, it was decided that no steps should be taken against him and that the whole business should be hushed up. I asked the captain whether there was really anything queer about the house, whether he had seen anything. He said yes, he had twice seen a woman going about the house. We all looked at one another when the captain said that. He told us she had never bothered him and that he had only seen her twice and on each occasion it had followed a narrow escape from the revenue people. Captain Tobias was an observant man. He had seen how I placed mats against the doors, and after entering the rooms and walking all about them so as to leave the footmarks of an old pair of wet woolen slippers everywhere, he had deliberately put the mats back as he found them. The maggot which had dropped from his disgusting leg of mutton had been an accident, and beyond even his horrible planning, he was hugely delighted to learn how it had affected us. 
The moldy smell I had noticed was from the little closed stairway when the captain opened the panel. The door slamming was also another of his contributions. I come now to the end of the captain's ghost play, and to the difficulty of trying to explain the other peculiar things. In the first place, it was obvious there was something genuinely strange in the house which made itself manifest as a woman. Many different people had seen this woman under differing circumstances, so it is impossible to put the thing down to fancy. At the same time, it must seem extraordinary that I should have lived two years in the house and seen nothing, whilst the policeman saw the woman before he had been there twenty minutes. The landlord, the detective, and the inspector all saw her. I can only surmise that fear was in every case the key, as I might say, which opened these senses to the presence of the woman. The policeman was a highly strung man, and when he became excited, was able to see the woman. The same reasoning applies all round. I saw nothing until I became really frightened. Then I saw not the woman, but a child, running away from something or someone. However, I will touch on that later. In short, until a very strong degree of fear was present, no one was affected by the force which made itself evident as a woman. My theory explains why some tenants were never aware of anything strange in the house whilst others left immediately. The more sensitive they were, the less would be the degree of fear necessary to make them aware of the force present in the house. The peculiar shining of all the metal objects in the cellar had been visible only to me. The cause, naturally, I do not know. Neither do I know why I alone was able to see the shining. The child, I asked, can you explain that part at all? Why you didn't see the woman and why they didn't see the child? Was it merely the same force, appearing differently to different people? No, said Karnacki. I can't explain that, but I am quite sure that the woman and the child were not only two complete and different entities, but even that they were not in quite the same planes of existence. To give you a root idea, however, it is held in the Sigsund manuscript that a child stillborn is snatched back by the hags. This is crude, but may yet contain an elemental truth. Yet before I make this clearer, let me tell you a thought that has often been made. It may be that physical birth is but a secondary process, and that prior to the possibility, the mother spirit searches for, until it finds, the small element, the primal ego or child's soul. It may be that a certain waywardness would cause such to strive to evade capture by the mother spirit. It may have been such a thing as this that I saw. I have always tried to think so. But it is impossible to ignore the sense of repulsion that I felt when the unseen woman went past me. This repulsion carries forward the idea suggested in the Sigsand manuscript that a stillborn child is thus, because its ego or spirit has been snatched back by the hags. In other words, by certain of the monstrosities of the outer circle. The thought is inconceivably terrible, and probably the more so because it is so fragmentary. It leaves us with the conception of a child's soul adrift halfway between two lives and running through eternity from something incredible and inconceivable, because not understood, to our senses. The thing is beyond further discussion, for it is futile to attempt to discuss a thing, to any purpose, of which one has a knowledge so fragmentary as this. There is one thought which is often mine. Perhaps there is a mother spirit. And the well? 
said Arkwright. How did the captain get in from the other side? As I said before, answered Carnacki, the side walls of the well did not reach to the bottom, so that you had only to dip down into the water and come up again on the other side of the wall under the cellar floor, and so climb into the passage. Of course, the water was the same height on both sides of the walls. Don't ask me who made the well entrance or the little stairway, for I don't know. The house was very old, as I have told you, and that sort of thing was useful in the old days. And the child, I said, coming back to the thing which chiefly interested me, you would say that the birth must have occurred in that house, and in this way one might suppose that the house to have become en rapport, if I can use the word that way, with the forces that produced the tragedy. Yes, replied Carnacki. This is supposing we take the suggestion of the Sigsand manuscript to account for the phenomenon. There may be other houses, I began. There are, said Carnacki, and stood up. Out you go, he said genially, using the recognized formula. And in five minutes we were on the embankment, going thoughtfully to our various homes.'